Okay, so if you're using one of the blue Bibles, you can find the Bible reading on page 1028. So we're starting in chapter 3. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Ituria and Trachonitus, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priest of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight, the rough way smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What should we do then? The crowd asked. John answered, Anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none, and anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't exhort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come. The straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and, and proclaimed the good news to them. But one John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of his marriage to Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other evil things he had done. Herod added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Now we're just going to skip to chapter 4 now. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me. And I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. 
The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Let me pray, and then um, we'll have a look at this section. And if you've got your booklet there, that would be helpful on uh, page 5. There's just a simple outline, but it'll give you a clear idea of where we're heading. Heavenly Father, we give you great thanks for your word. We give you great thanks that uh, we can see the beginning of Jesus' ministry uh, where he brings in the kingdom. And as we think about it now, we pray we'll see he has all the credentials and that will impact us in how we relate to him and to the world. Amen. I remember two years ago being very, very nervous. I'm not as nervous today because most of you I, I know and you seem to be okay with me getting up the front and talking to you and it's good. But that first Sunday I was like... I'm really nervous. What am I? This was a bad idea. I was really, really nervous. Have you had times in your life when you're really, really nervous? I reckon there's one that if you've done this, you were freaking out. It's the job interview. The job interview is a nerve-wracking experience, right? Yeah, is it is? Yes. Thank you, Carola. It is. It's, it's not the most pleasant thing to go through, but it's kind of important. Why do we have job interviews? Not a rhetorical question. Yell out to me. Why do we have job interviews? To get jobs. Why do the employer have job interviews? Make people sweat, says one who interviews people for jobs all the time. <laughs> what, are, what, other, what other reasons? Get the right person for the job. You want to know that all the candidates of all the people that apply for jobs, that they have the right credentials. That they are actually the right person for the job. You want to know that they can do the job, that they've got the right references, that other people think that they could do the job. And so job interviews, um, whether they're successful all the time or not, is a whole different story. I, I got employed for a couple of jobs before I went into ministry where I thought, I don't... No, brother, I should have got the job, but that's another story. But what we actually see today, I reckon, is Jesus' job interview. He didn't go before a panel, but I think this section, in many ways, is operating like that, where we're seeing Jesus' credentials for the job that he, we've already found out he's come to do, to bring in the kingdom that we saw last week in the birth stories. Jesus is going to come in and bring in the kingdom. He's going to have a ministry to do that. Is he the right man for the job? Can he do it? And I think today, what I want you to see, if you can come along with me, is that there's three important identifiers of Jesus before he gets started in bringing in the kingdom, as I put down the outline. Three things that I think show he's the man for the job and he didn't need to go through a job interview. But if he did, we can see how he's the right man. And I think we see in this section that there's three parts to it. Kat read the outside bits, and I, I didn't um, make her read the uh, genealogy that you see in the middle there of all those words, but that's an important bit that we'll allude to as well. You've got these two important stories 
where you've got the baptism of Jesus and John the Baptist preparing the way. And then you've got Jesus being tempted in the desert. And then you've got this story, like just names of people, a genealogy in the middle. Let's break them down. Let's see why they're really important and why it's actually really beautifully written. First of all, let's look at his endorsement. His endorsement in chapters uh, 3, 1 to 22, we see that Jesus was baptised by John. You see, what goes before an interview, first of all? When you, when you want to have a job, what do you do first? You apply and you hand in a resume. You hand in a resume and you prepare for the interview. The employers want to be prepared for what's the person coming. They're not just going to let any, you know, Joe blow off the street come up and apply for a job. They want to have some sense that maybe they could do the job. Before Jesus came, the people really needed to be prepared. They really needed to be prepared. And it was a historical thing. This wasn't just something that is an idea that's floated around. This is something that happened in a certain period. So that's how Luke starts off in chapter 3, by giving us details that on the surface don't seem significant to us. But if we drew down deeper into them, it's locating it in history. When he, when he talks about the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar and Pontius Pilate, the governor of Judea, um, and Herod and so on. You see, what's actually happening is John comes and prepares the way for him. Have a look at verse 3. He went into all the country around Judea, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. In verse 4, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in every mountain and hill made low. The crooked road shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. So the problem is, the people, God's people, have constantly turned away from him and aren't living the way that he wants and God's king and kingdom is coming and they're not ready for it because they're living in rebellion to him and so John comes and saying, you need to turn around. Your way is God's people is not God's way is God's people. And so we need to cut the circuit and say, when God comes, it's a different way. And so John's preparation was to say, righto, you, he says, say like, you brood of vipers, right? You, you brood of vipers, you can't be a viper anymore. You've got to repent, turn around, come back to God. And so the baptism that John did in the Jordan, which is a significant uh, a, a place for it to happen, as the people crossed the Jordan many, many years ago, and then were rebellious, John actually says, there is a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That is, when God's kingdom comes, it's not, the kingdom come, it's all good, nothing needs to happen, I'm just reigning now. The kingdom comes and there's a whole bunch of my people who are in rebellion and are sinful and they need to be forgiven. And there needs to be a cleansing, which we know is the blood of Jesus. And so John, that cleansing signifies, uh, before they understood what was going on, through a baptism of being immersed in the Jordan, rising up, preparing for the new kingdom in which you are forgiven by Jesus. It is a very good preparation for him to come. It's a preparation that 
is about God's salvation that was promised in the Old Testament, hence the Isaiah quote, that this is the salvation that they've been promised over and over again. And it's coming. John is preparing the way and if there is this need, the thing that he goes on to in detail, which we won't elaborate on now, is that he's saying that that does mean that God's salvation means that there's judgment. He says in verse 8, when he, just before he says in verse 7, you're a brood of vipers who warn you to flee from the coming wrath. Then he says in verse 8, produce feet, fruit in keeping with repentance. Think that's, that's really good, isn't it? Because he's saying repentance, turning back to God, isn't the people getting dunked in water and coming up and going, okay, I'm happy for the kingdom now. It's actually, I'm turning back to God, so the things that I do, the producing of fruit, is now very different to when I was a viper. I'm producing the what God wants. And so there's a total change in which the community needs to think because they're going to live God's way. And so they're to produce fruit and realize that because they haven't, there is judgment, but the king is coming and he provides salvation. So the preparation has been set and Jesus turns up and his endorsement where he comes and gets baptized. Imagine that setting where John's talking about this one who's going to do these things and he sees Jesus come and he knows his place. John had real clarity on his place before Jesus and And Jesus comes and says, baptize me. What a humbling experience for John. And he baptizes him. As his people go through this symbolic renewal, the one who brings them into the kingdom does the same. But when he does it, have a look at verse 21. Very, very significant. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened up and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. Here we have Jesus coming up out of the water and the Spirit and the Father turn up. Now, If you apply for a job and when they ask you, so who thinks that you can do this job? And you say, oh, my last boss thought I was pretty rubbish at it. (laughs) Uh, And the one before that, well, he sacked me. And (laughs) the one before that, I didn't like him. He was a jerk. If no one gives you a rap, no matter how good you look on paper, no matter how good you present in the interview, you're not going to get the job. Jesus, before he does his mission, his job, has a divine rap where the Spirit of God turns up, descends on him, endorsing him, this is my work. And not only is it his work, the Father says, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. Those words in themselves are profound, aren't they? The Father is saying, I love him. He is treasured. He is the one who's going to do everything I ask of him willingly. And I'm so perfectly pleased in him. 
But these words are even far richer and deeper when we understand where they come from. We've looked at Psalm 2 uh, a few times and recently, and you are my son comes directly out of Psalm 2 where God's Messiah, the Davidic King, will reign forever. So not only is he saying, this is the one I'm endorsing, he's saying, this is my king, the one who's promised who I am endorsing, and he reigns forever. With you I am well pleased comes from Isaiah 42. And in Isaiah 42, it's one who suffers and dies on, you know, on our behalf. That is a pretty impressive reference. If you rung up to find about, out about uh, Jesus and his credentials to do this job and you found out that God himself said, well, actually, he's my king and Messiah and he will rule forever, you go, great, he's the guy. Right? This is it. This is how much Jesus has been identified as the king. He is endorsed totally and thoroughly by God himself. So when we question Jesus, we do well to remember that God himself fully endorses him, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit working perfectly together. Let's have a look, secondly, at his credentials in the um, temptation before we come back to the genealogy. You see, what happens, his credentials in regards to the temptation that Kat read for us, he's tempted by Satan. I've always loved, even as a kid, I've loved this story, just the whole idea of this Almost, I, as a kid, I thought about it like it's this battle. Satan's there giving him his best shot and Jesus is there giving him. What I come to realize, it's not a battle. Jesus doesn't need to be concerned with battling Satan. He just smashes him all the time. It's not a contest like our movies and the big battles at the end of movies. This is just simply Jesus owning Satan and showing us how much he has authority to actually defeat him later on. But it's actually a do-over. The people there in the wilderness, Jesus was in the desert for 40, 40 days. 40 years ago in the wilderness, the people grumbling and moaning and complaining, not trusting God who's rescued them. And now Jesus, who goes on to do the rescuing, does what his people couldn't do and stand up to Satan, reject him and his ways. He can do the job because the number one enemy is not even a contestant against him. It's just, it's just not even a battle. So I've played squash with Jack a few times and he owns me. Like I can't beat, beat Jack at squash, right? It's just, it's not a contest. It's fun, but it's not a contest. Here, actually there was one time, wasn't there Jack? Yeah, there was one moment. There was, yeah, no, okay, let's move on. Let's go on there. Don't do that. All right, so, but, <laughs> I forgot, I knew he would should have known he'd do that. All right. <laughs> so, but here, right, here, what we're actually, what we're actually seeing is that Jesus, Jesus defeats Satan totally and utterly, unlike the people. It's not a contest. It's a smashing. And look how he does it. Let's actually just have a look at the, the story for a moment. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit. See, the Holy Spirit is there endorsing the ministry from the beginning and always empowering and sending forth. What the Holy Spirit's doing through Luke's gospel is pointing us constantly to Jesus. It's fantastic. Empowering him, helping us to see him. And so he's tempted by the devil in 40 days in verse 2. And then look at what the devil says in verse 3. 
If you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. If you are the son of God, Jesus answered. It is written, man shall not live on bread alone. Drops the microphone and walks away. Like it just, you know, smashes him. No, the Bible is very clear on this, you idiot. (laughs) I'm not going to do that. Verse 5. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Like, I love the, the Satan. What a! I, I find that a kind of a strange one because he knows who he is, and he's offering him what he has. And Jesus is like, no, there's only one person to worship. I've come because my people kept on getting that wrong. So as if I'm going to do that, the very thing they couldn't do, depend upon me and trust in my provision, and then just worship me. No, Satan. Verse 9, the devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Ah, Satan's like, Jesus keeps on using God's words against me. I'll use them. Well, used them badly. And Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord God Uh, your God to the test. I'm not going to challenge God's authority and what he's going to do for me over you, Satan. You see, this proves Jesus, oh, he has the credentials to get the job done. If the task of bringing in the kingdom is to destroy all other kingdoms and reigns and authorities with Satan being the one behind them all, when Satan comes into, into the show, Jesus shows He has all the power and authority. All the way to Easter, where he dies and Satan thinks he's won and he conquers the grave and casts him out forever. You see, he can do the job. The issue is humanity. The Israelites before constantly wander around in a wilderness. And Jesus wants us to turn out of the wilderness Repent and come to him who can do what we can't. It's an interesting point though. The other thing I love about this chapter, I could just preach, you know, for an hour on this, just these these, uh, verses. It's such great challenge to us because what does Jesus do? What is his tool? You know, what skills have you got to do the job? What skills, what, what tools does Jesus have? The word of God. He knows God's ways and his words and at every moment he uses them when he's tempted uh, by Satan. When he challenges him, he just says, no, no, this is what God says. This kingdom knows, loves and cherishes God's words over and over and over. That's a real challenge for us, I reckon. And then we get the bit in the middle, which I reckon is kind of like the sandwich because it's kind of showing his endorsement and his credentials and bringing them all together. And we get 
this genealogy. I don't know if you've uh, had a look at a genealogy before, and there's lots of them in the Bible. If you've been doing the Bible in a year, you've read a few genealogies already, and it's kind of like, oh man, these names are weird, and I can't even pronounce them, and um, there was a lot in this one. What is the purpose of it? What is the purpose of the genealogy in the middle? I think we see, not only does he have um, an endorsement from God himself, not only can he show us that the job of defeating Satan he can do, that he's the one that's promised, who has a specific role, and it's historical. See, verse 23, Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was a son of, uh, so it was thought, of Joseph. Because actually, when we look into his family line, this family line, the genealogy is pointing us to three specific moments. In verse 31, Jesus' line has the son of David. The king that we talk about is so important. He, Jesus is by being identified as the messianic king, the one who is promised who will reign. And not only is he the son of David, he's the son of Abraham. If you've been reading Genesis, as we've been doing, and you find that Abraham was given all these promises of being a blessing and now Jesus in this line is the one who brings blessing. And it doesn't just stop there because it goes all the way back to Adam, the son of God, and so his blessing is to all humanity. And so what we actually have, it's so beautifully constructed and put together that we have Jesus is the messianic king who brings God's blessing to all humanity. That's what this genealogy is showing us. It's a fantastic picture of who God is. He has all the credentials. How do we let this impact us? How do we think about these things? What do we make of it? See, it's not just like he has the credentials, like sometimes sportsmen who get this massive payout, a massive endorsement, and everyone says how good they are and how great they're going to be, and yet they never reach their potential. They get injured or they can't, they just can't, uh, they get in all sorts of trouble with their own lives or, or they just never turn out to be as great as everyone thought. He's not like that. It's not like he's prepared the way, and we know that because we know where the story goes. It goes to the cross, to Easter, where he does conquer death, where he does rise from the dead, where he is the one who gives life. I wonder whether you sometimes struggle with confidence in Jesus and what he's done. I think today, what we can take away is that his credentials, that we, we see in his kind of job interview, prove to us that he is someone that we can rely upon, someone that we can depend upon, someone who is not going to come into the world and do all of these things and then not save us. And if you're not sure where you are with God, the big question for you is, do I think Jesus, that these credentials stack up? That Jesus is actually someone I should see as being this king? And if he is, 
you do think that today is the day where you realize like they came up out of the out of the jordan i need to trust in him and your life changes as he becomes your true king i think there's more that we can draw out of this if jesus comes with such single-minded focus on mission we need single-minded focus on mission as his people that's why uh, we we're um, always talking about uh, mission here at grove and this year going to catherine which is uh, what we're going to do and um, before we pray about catherine i'll talk about it a bit later um, as well but we we want to see the gospel kingdom go out if this king impacts you and you think his way is right you can't say yes to his focus on bringing in the kingdom be in the kingdom over here but then yet turn your back on wanting the kingdom to grow it just doesn't work because the kingdom itself is about people who are wanting the kingdom to be proclaimed why we keep um, built into our dna at grove is that mindset and not just because we desperately want to not be able to fit into this room we want more and more people to come to grow in their relationship with jesus to go from darkness to light we desperately want that here and we want it to go beyond because that is god's plan for the world that's what his credentials tell us he's come to do And more than that, what tools do we have? We have the Spirit empowering us, revealing to us God's Word, and like Jesus against Satan, wanting us to understand His Word more deeply and more profoundly. We'll never apologize for working really hard into God's Word the community groups where we have deep Bibles discussions. we we doing this read scripture thing, not because we want to tick off a box of reading the Bible in a year, because we should be utterly and absolutely convinced that by God's Spirit, Jesus transforms us by the knowing of His Word and His Word is revealed to us in story over a long period of time in which we can understand the bigger picture as we get to it together. There is no doubt that when God's people delve into his word in depth, they grow. Uh, there's been a study done in America. I'll, I'll bring out the details for you later when I, I get my hands on it, but it was, we were talking about it the other day. Well, I think it was 100,000 people over thousands of churches in America over... Um, Oh, it was 10 or 20 years. I'll, I'll get the details for you when um, we're going to talk about it another time. Um, but they did this study to try and figure out what is the key mark in church of spiritual growth, growing in Christ-likeness, if you like. And the, there was a scientific study. Uh, there's a paper on it and all that kind of stuff. Um, and the overwhelming marker, what can you do to identify? The overwhelming marker was when God's people read God's Word. Wow. Science science proved that to us <laughs> God, we should have known that right it's just good to see that it, it kind of came out when you read the bible four times 
by yourself in quiet devotion um, and in God, with God's people four times a week, it was a clear marker. You see, God, that's how God's planned it. And so we're obsessed with it. I've been studying, uh, other than, than maybe a couple of you, <laughs> definitely Peter, I've been studying the Bible pretty uh, a lot. In, in, I've had that privilege because of the role that I have. I got to go to Bible college and do all, all those things. Many of you can do that as well. But I know nothing, I think I can say, about God's Word compared to what I could know because there's so much depth and beauty and splendor in it to understand. And I feel like we can sell ourselves short. I wonder if I was in Jesus' position and Satan said that to me, could have I thrown out those verses? And I would have, no, I couldn't have. I think I could have resisted and given general paraphrases in that sense, but I couldn't have quoted them like that. A love for God's word is a love for God's kingdom. And the one who brings in the kingdom with all the credentials wants us to love his word. I hope you go away today encouraged. It's great that you can be with us um, on our um, second anniversary because I hope in years to come the second anniversary will mean nothing because Grove will be going for so long and our focus will be on him that will grow and grow and grow and see the kingdom go out more and more. Let me pray that we truly will depend upon the one who brings in the kingdom. Heavenly Father, we give you great thanks for your word. We give you great thanks that Jesus has come. That he has come with such authority that the way you beautifully crafted Luke's gospel and Luke has shown us that he has all the credentials, all your backing, all the heritage to bring in your kingdom. As your people, help us to trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen.